Hello, everyone. It's Angeline Chen. Welcome to Immigration Today, where I interview leaders, advocates, experts, and volunteers in immigration and immigrant rights on the issues, their experiences, and how you can make a difference. Today, we have Faisal Aljaburi. He is a strategic partnership specialist with more than a decade of experience in the nonprofit sector. Aljaburi currently serves as a chief external affairs officer for RAISES. Previously, he held positions at the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, New York Restoration Project, and Sulia, a leader in cross-cultural exchange. He holds an MS in corporate communications from New York University and a BA in history from the University of Virginia. Raises Texas is a 501c3 nonprofit agency founded in 1986 and the largest immigration legal services provider in Texas. With legal and social services paired alongside litigation and advocacy for systems change, RAISES is operating on the national front lines of the fight for the rights of immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers. Faisal, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I know you are so, so busy. Really appreciate your time. Um, is it okay if we get right into the conversation? Let's do it. Awesome. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself and just how did you become interested in philanthropy? I appreciate that. Um, uh, uh, my name is Faisal. My family is from Iraq. Um, uh, my parents immigrated in uh, the late 70s, along with my eldest sister, uh, and there really uh, hadn't been the anticipation of uh, of actually building a life here, but world circumstances and conflict um, sort of led to us putting down roots in the U.S. And uh, I grew, I was born in Cincinnati, grew up um, first in Little Rock and then in uh, the D.C. suburbs. Um, and uh, we were always kind of fish out of water in a way, um, and always straddling sort of two worlds. Mm. Um, but what my parents always led with was this notion of service mm. and that we are all in service to one another in this life. Mm -hmm. And I really found that to be beautiful from a, from a values perspective. And it's what, um, I'm sort of rooted in myself and, that that's something that I've been able to take with me wherever I've gone personally and professionally. Mm -hmm. And uh, specifically with philanthropy, it's an opportunity to guide people and resources mm -hmm. to issues that matter. The opportunity to really practice it in the space of uh, raices and in the immigrant rights landscape um, is something that's deeply meaningful to me again because of that that personal history and also where giving back and paying it forward um, that was born out of that was born out of my family. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, how did it start for you? Like, did it start? Were you volunteering in high school and college? Like, how did just providing service for people when did that start and how uh it's, it's it's a great question organically i think you know and so i would definitely say probably more so around um around high school uh i grew up um i was a senior in high school uh at the time of september 11th and so 
uh, the end was in, uh, you know, right, right outside of DC when September 11th um, happened. Um, I was in high school in the Alexandria, Virginia area. And so it's something wow. that, uh, you know, moments away from the Pentagon. Um, and wow. uh, it's something that definitely literally hit close to home. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and for me, it was, one of those moments to to lean in and remind myself that there wasn't this us them dichotomy there didn't need to be um that <clears throat> there was a grave human tragedy and that we could grieve and be in community together um but it's also it was a fascinating moment for me too because there very much was the impulse within my community uh to begin that us them bifurcation that I'd really I'd felt as a young boy during the um the first Gulf War. Mm -hmm. Uh and um, in the early 90s, and this concept of one half of me, mm. uh, the the Iraqi, the Arab half of me, the Muslim half of me, mm -hmm. is inherently the bad. <laughs> and uh, the American side of me is the good, and they're now at war with each other. And it... Yeah that has definitely fueled the work that we're doing at Raices that I'm doing at Raices because so much of what we're seeing right now as well is um, within immigration policy and practice is actually rooted in systems that were established in post 9-11 sort of fear-mongering yeah. um, with the creation of DH of the Department of Homeland Security. So um so I say that to say that there is a, everything is interlinked for me and there's mm -hmm. context and connection in my life uh, is, is, is why I'm really, I'm really proud to represent Raices to be doing the work that we're doing right now in the immigrant rights movement um, because I feel like my life was leading to this. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. It's super interesting. It's super interesting about the us, them, and about the differences in the culture. And I, I definitely deal with that as well, being a, a Chinese-American born here with immigrant parents and not really belonging in China or, or Thailand, where my parents are from, and not necessarily belonging here either. But then also having the, because of uh, COVID, what has happened and having the Asian hate and having, you know, I, I get I get that like there's part of me that is not liked and the part of me that is just trying to balance between those two um well, I think we're all looking for belonging yeah. right like I think that that's it and I think that one of the hardest things in any of these socio-political sort of conversations that um we have is that bottom line what we have to do is we have to dehumanize someone mm -hmm. in order to not um in order to be able to push forward an agenda sometimes right like because yeah. 
the end of the day, if you realize like we're all humans, we're all seeking the very same basic sort of forms of connection and a place. And if you think too much about that, then sometimes maybe some of the policies and practices um, that uh, people are advocating for, um, our elected officials are advocating for, uh, become a little bit more complicated to reckon with. Um, and, and I think that that's why specifically around talking about any type of immigrants, uh, immigrant peoples here in the US, you end up seeing a lot of headlines that are rooted in either sort of terminology of war or of like water, right? Like surge influx. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it's in a way to make you forget that they're actually just families. Just people and yeah. children. Mm -hmm. And it's, it really is just so insane. And, and it, it hasn't, it, it's only getting worse. It feels like it's just getting worse. Like the more, uh, you know, even after 9-11, then you have Trump, then you have zero tolerance policy, and then you have Biden like, oh, wow, we have all this hope. And it just doesn't look like it's much getting better. Um mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit more uh, about now. What does Raices do? Yeah, so um, as you shared with everyone, uh, Raices was founded in 1986. Mm -hmm. um, it's a grassroots organization. Uh, started off as a two-person team. It was born out of the sanctuary movement in the 1980s. Um, uh, headquartered in San Antonio, and. Uh, became a, a Department of Justice accredited um, legal services provider in 1993. Um, and that has been the core of the programming for the past 30 years now, um, uh, focusing on providing affirmative and uh, deportation defense uh, <clears throat> legal services for immigrants, refugees, asylum seekers. Um, in addition, uh, in 2017, we started our refugee uh, resettlement program, uh, in 2017 was the first year that Texas stopped working as an intermediary. The state of Texas stopped working as like the intermediary for refugee resettlement agencies um, with the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Um, and so uh, it was a moment that we actually sort of stepped in as increased infrastructure was being built um, within Texas through private partners. So USCRI, our national partner, um, brought us uh, into the space as a local service provider. And that's a program that's continued to grow um, where we, you know, where we receive um, refugee families, um, including our Afghan special immigrant visa holders mm. and also humanitarian parolees over the last few years, um, provide uh, reception and placement services, uh, housing, school matriculation, uh, job placement services, um, access to health, financial assistance, um, everything that you need to sort of put down roots in a, in a new, in a new country and a new community. And we took on refugee resettlement programming because we looked at it as a potential model for what, a humane approach to asylum could look like in the U.S. Um, because our attorneys, our client advocates are on the front lines in detention centers, um, which I really call like immigration prisons at the end of the day in terms of the totally. circumstances. Yeah, uh, we again, words again matter, right? Like it's that sometimes as you say, it's a shelter, it's a detention center, it's a family residential center was my favorite. Like, oh, like, wow. wow. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, Pushing it. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so they're on the, you know, they're on the front lines looking at how essentially people are. It's parents and children are being imprisoned for seeking the right to safety, security, um, trying to pursue sort of the human and legal right to asylum in the U.S. Uh, and uh, essentially being criminalized for it uh, mm-hmm. at the end of the day. And so, um, you know, we look at re- refugee resettlement programming as, you know, this is what things could look like, really, um, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, and what we hope sort of asylum could look like in the future. That's great. That's great. So Rice has got a lot of attention around 2018 when Trump had implemented the zero tolerance policy where um, the government was separating families at the border who were seeking asylum. That really hit the news. Um, and and Raices was really in the forefront of that. And, and I'm so grateful for you. And now, of course, there are a lot of organizations helping and, and things like that. But how much has it grown from kind of you know, before the zero tolerance policy came out and then kind of now, like how, how big is it? For sure. Yeah. So, uh, zero tolerance policy, we got thrust into the spotlight. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, I mean, gratefully, so we'd been working specifically with unaccompanied children at that point, um, for about nine years at that point and had mm-hmm. been working within the, um, within family detention centers for about five years at that point. So it was a, uh, you know, we were, we'd known the space, we were on the ground, we were doing the work, and we were thrilled to have the opportunity to um, provide the platforms um, for these stories and these voices to be heard. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, we grew considerably from sort of pure size and function, right? We were less than $7 million annual operating budget in 2017. Uh, We have grown to essentially be roughly between a 30 to $35 million organization annually. Uh, Amazing. uh, And our staff size has has grown considerably as well, uh, about, um, you know, from roughly 150 people to roughly uh, 300 people. Um, So we've Doubled in size. Uh, what it's allowed us to do, though, is really look at how can we increase the depth of impact on the community members that we serve? Mm-hmm. And how do we build out our infrastructure uh, mm-hmm. in order to be able to make long-term investments um, that can secure the greatest chance of success within uh, within immigration court? Right? When you look at the last 25 years of data, uh, it's about 4% of, of those uh, who have um, uh, had immigration proceedings, uh, immigration court in Texas, um, have received some type of relief, right? About, yeah. right now, about 22% um, have legal representation. Uh, that is a, um, there's a direct correlation between those who have legal representation and those who are able to have some type of, find some type of relief um, within the system. But what a lot of people don't realize is these are sometimes years long. Um, oh, yeah. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I don't think like that. So you speak about family separation. We're still working on several cases. We'd been working with over 50 families that had been separated uh, under under the zero tolerance policy. Uh, also, in terms of their their continued sort of a pursuit of um, of restitution. Um, mm-hmm. 
the uh, there's an interesting story that your 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 listeners might enjoy hearing from a, like a context standpoint is that sometimes we say as an organization cruelty is the point right and you can never really speak to people's intentions except for around zero tolerance it is well documented that no no like we we are implementing some of these extreme measures in order to deter people from immigrating right like we want to make a point um and so uh a lot uh, there is a scenario where we had um clients who were uh, at a, a family detention center, fathers and sons, uh, 13 fathers and sons, um, pairs who were uh, reunited within detention um, in that summer of 2018, and then reseparated uh, for a brief period of over a day, but reseparated as essentially mental, mental uh, games. Yeah. Uh, torture. Torture. To, <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, thank you for saying it. Yeah. It's to torture for torture. And, you know, we, we represented, um, we can't speak to the, the specifics of, but, uh, it's out there. Um, we represented those 13 families, um, in, uh, in their suit against, uh, geo group, which is a mm-hmm. private prison contractor that, um, again, People need to know is that these detention these these ICE detention centers are immigration prisons that are run by private prison contractors. So by yeah. Geo Group, by CoreCivic, uh, and so um, you know we represented them and uh, were able to secure some relief for them. Um, but that was a four year case from 2019 filing to um, resolution at the beginning of this year. So uh, that's where we are. Um, so from 2018 onward, we're still working on. A lot of those cases, as well as dealing with what's happening in real time, because family separation is kind of a function of U.S. immigration policy, not specifically what happened under zero tolerance of the Mm -hmm. physical tearing apart of like a mother from child. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's it it metastasizes in fascinating ways. Um, But part of the the intention there is to. Is to make you give up. Right. Yeah. Like it's that you're you're breaking people off from their from their support system, from their ecosystem. It's it's breaking people down. Mm-hmm. And um, and so we see it in very many ways. We see it continuing to today where there's been a very troubling pattern of uh, of fathers um, at the border being separated from their um, from their spouses and their children. Yes. Uh, of them being um, taken in and charged um, uh, for criminal trespassing um, while then uh, the rest of their family goes into the immigration system. And then sometimes it can be minimum of months until um, they're reunited. So I'm glad you say that because it is still happening. And uh, I was just in San Diego a few weeks ago because right now CBP in, in Tijuana are releasing um, some of the asylum seekers onto the street and then buses are being picked up by nonprofits and helping them do intakes and finding, you know, finding out where they need to go and, and all of that. And, uh, and they are looking for their family who, you know, they came together with, it could be a sibling and these specific people I was working with were adults, but spouses and people 
they just they came together and they were separated. One is, you know, in another state and trying to find where they are. And it's so it's so ridiculous why CBP would not just keep them together. And they're just not trying to make things easy. And then us volunteers and these nonprofits just need to make up for that, like for that. <laughs> and it's just it makes me super upset. And I'm and I want people to realize that it's still happening. Um, and and also for children where, let's say it's the technically the parent, but it's not a biological mother or father, and they don't have the paperwork. It's like an aunt, and you know they just don't have the birth certificate saying or legal document for custody. They're they're you know they could be separated as well. So it's just it really is so inhumane, like you said before. Um, I need to go out to Texas to volunteer for you guys too. <laughs> Yes, I would welcome that. Yes, uh, that would be great. Um, And it's, uh, it's, yeah. And I, I, I'll tell you for the last year, as there have been sort of continued sort of uh, threats to really the spirit of asylum, right? Like I think I have, I've continued to say, well, okay, if we no longer want to be a nation that provides asylum, let's have that conversation, right? Like, but that's not the conversation that's being had. It becomes like a very it's a, a semantics thing of like, mm-hmm. oh yes, no, we have an app now. Yeah, <laughs> like, CDP one, fill yeah, it out <laughs> exactly. Um, and and I laugh because it's, I mean, it does feel dystopian in a way sometimes, yeah. right? Like, and it's just, you're just like. Well, I got. I just. It's so preposterous that sometimes I have to laugh because, yeah. um, otherwise it would just be so frightening. But I think the sad thing is now, though, is that we actually are having the conversation about whether or not we care about asylum um, as an American value right now in terms of the bipartisan congressional um, sort of uh, whatever negotiations that are uh, that have been reported on this week um, about yeah. the you know the potential of limiting further asylum and humanitarian parole uh, in exchange for um, continued funding for uh, support of wars in Ukraine and elsewhere, right? So it's- Oh my God. Yeah. Awful. It is. Um, it's awful. It can be, it can be disheartening. And I think um, it can be, it's very easy it's very attractive to sort of end up in a very nihilistic state. But mm-hmm. what I also continue to remind myself is that nihilism is a tool of white supremacy as well, right? Like right. that is, it's, it is, it, it's, it's kind of like the point of family separation. It's meant to make you just want to give up, right? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. um, at the end of the day, we see so many sort of powerful moments of what can what can exist if we center humanity, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't want to sound trite, but like really like what are the the opportunities that can exist for those that we serve when we put their needs and interests first? Mm-hmm. And how can that then further sort of benefit the whole, right? I think so many of the conversations to me also just feel very much like cutting off your nose to spite your face, right? Like it's mm-hmm. like it's this, it is this, um, uh, the the disdain for immigrants um, that's within the national narrative. Yeah. 
at is, uh, is, is, is self-defeating, I think here in the U S. Um, and also it's not a popular opinion, but it's one that I feel compelled to share is it's not, it's not about one party or the other. I usually mm. say that it's really easy to be nonpartisan when you're working in the immigration landscape, because mm. really both sides of the aisle have, um, have aggrieved um, us, uh, yeah, as a community. And mm-hmm. and I think what I've seen specifically is that, right, when you start looking at how did things start shifting in the last 20 plus years, right, with the mm-hmm. creation of Department of Homeland Security, where um, Customs and Border Protection and, you know, and uh, ICE, um, you know, fall under, right, where do you... Uh, a starting of you know family detention on mass um you uh you start to see that really it was under the obama administration that nationally this good versus bad immigrant narrative really started to take yes root. and people felt like felt excused to be able to be like oh yeah no no, no i like the good immigrants but what about the bad ones yeah <laughs> like, I have those conversations all the time. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how you navigate it, um, but to me, it rattles me <laughs> still. <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll have people who say, "Okay, I'm trying to help this person. You know, he has he's engineer. Um, want to hire him and H one B. You know, he's not one of those illegals. You know, it's just like, oh, and I can't. It's like, do I want to get into it right now? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Do I want to get yeah. into it right now? Yeah, and and I'll make maybe one statement. Well, you know that's probably not an appropriate, not appropriate to say. But and then I just keep keep going, speaking regular because you know they're a potential client as well. But um, yeah, it it yeah it it really it really is a problem. There's one thing that I was always thinking about was when, you know, obviously I've been doing immigration for 20 years. So when 2018 came along with the zero tolerance policy, a lot of people who were not normally interested in immigration came out and wanted to help. There were a lot of, um, you know, I got a lot of calls and and you know, recruit a lot of volunteers to the border to help. And they just, they didn't know anything. They just wanted to help or wanted to do a fundraiser or they just knew something was wrong. Like, you know, babies were being taken from their mothers and like, there's, these are people and that was that was really interesting. I feel like, did we do end up doing a good job in c- continuing to kind of mobilize these new people, right? And and then bring more awareness and 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 have them continue to be involved in the community. And I and I, again, I'm just one person, and I, and it's hard for me to. I was like, oh yeah. Sometimes I think about, oh yeah, what about you know so and so? She did this like fundraiser the other day. I should contact her and things like that, because now that it's not as popular on the news, they go to their own lives. But I think they, you know, there are people still really interested. I feel like there's, we need to kind of, and I don't know how you feel about that, because I'm sure a lot of people came out of the woodwork who, you know, just, oh my gosh, I want to help. And whether or not we're keeping those people involved, I don't know. What do you feel? Yeah, it's a, um, it's one of my favorite questions, actually. It was like, it's a loaded one. It's a lot to unpack there, but, um, mm. for, for sure, we, for a little bit of context, actually, Raiz has ended up sort of making, you know, sort of taking a sort of leadership, uh, position, um, uh, during family separation, during zero tolerance, 
because of a campaign, a Facebook fundraising campaign that we didn't start for ourselves that went viral. Um, mm. And so it was actually kind of, ha- everything was kind of happenstance. Um, mm. But it was, what I can say that was beautiful about that is that in five days, over 500,000 people donated um, over $20 million. And so- Amazing. We, uh, from a, um, also even just from a pure crowdsourcing standpoint, we're really that first social justice cause that started making the tens of millions of dollars from five, you know, 10, $15 increments. Um, mm-hmm. And so you, and and you saw that people just, people wanted to be able to make a difference. People mm-hmm. wanted to be able to make um, some type of impact um, on the lived experiences of these of these families, and um, it was beautiful to see. You see, it was the juxtaposition to some of the worst that you see within this um, with it, working within immigration, right? You see some mm-hmm. of the best in humanity as well. Yeah, and um, we had people volunteering, families coming and volunteering, and meeting, you know, helping to post bonds, meeting mm-hmm. people at um at the bus station to make sure that they could get off to their next destination. Mm-hmm. Um uh, of uh, ensuring that they had access to um to food, um to housing, that uh they had community guides, right? With mm-hmm. um so that they could understand their bearings, understand what resources were available to them. And there was such and i'm 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 pausing with my words because i will say something else that i don't want to negate this um there was it was true authenticity like of of intentions mm-hmm. but i think uh what i've recognized um is that for many as well that enact and support of our immigrant community members was for many, I'm not saying everyone, but for many, I think subconsciously uh, more, less of a pro-immigration act Mm. and more of a symbolic sort of action against what a certain elected official represented. Mm. And I think what's also really fascinating when you look at the data, because I'm I'm a mass, I'm I love human behavior, like understanding human behavior and also looking at sort of the data behind that. And for so many that became involved in the movement in that period of time, they, it was the first time that they started to self-identify as Democrats. Like that became a key self-identifying factor for them. Interesting. And so now you're in a place where, look, some of the worst of the former administration's policies continue to be enacted, variations of them. <laughs> um, and I think right now, if you say that the current party in office is still causing harms mm-hmm. to our community, creates a sick, it appears to me that it 
creates this existential triggers this existential crisis within that within within those who were supporters before mm. <laughs> because you're saying i've just spent several years embracing an an identifying factor like this this attributes because i thought that it meant it stood for everything good and right mm. um what does that mean if you were saying that there are still wrongs being committed. And I think that also very much speaks to from a human nature standpoint. And then especially I would say, you know, within the West of this, it's right, wrong, good, bad. Um, I'm a guy who's always shades of gray, right? Like I was like, no, everything's really nuanced. You know, there is, it's it's very rare that you, you're on the extreme on either side, right? Like yeah. it's like that. Um, but nuance is very hard to capture. And so we're so, we are trained <laughs> to think of things within a, it's either this or that. Yeah. And, um, and so I think that that's been a struggle for, uh, many of those who have come into, you know, who came into the movement at, you know, in 2018, 2019, mm-hmm. I think, um, really what's beautiful about it in some ways of what happened in that moment is it actually created a model by which it trained society in a model of rapid emergent crisis response fundraising for really important social justice causes. Mm -hmm. And so what people instinctively came together to do in a moment for us um, at Raices and within the immigration landscape uh, could be replicated um, as we've seen in other years, in recent years, in, 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 other, um, in other areas of need of intention. Um, uh, and that's the good. The, 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 the complicated of that is that I think we are also training ourselves as a society to think it's about a moment of time. Let's put in all of our efforts in one moment in time, and then mm. we should have solved the problem. Let's move to the next. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, I feel that way. I feel I see that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I don't, uh, right. Again, to shades of gray, there are pros and cons to everything. Um, uh, and I think, um, but I think it's conditioning It could also just be sort of the nature of where we're at from even from a social media perspective, right? Like right now, like when you look at if you're working in any type of external affairs context and you're looking at the data of how long people pay attention to like a video message, right? Like oh, gosh. Like, shorter oh, and shorter. Exactly. So like <laughs> it's down to like in the beginning, like right, like when I first started, we were like, you know, they're like, okay, like 30 seconds, right? And we got down to about 15 <laughs> seconds and then it got down to six seconds. And you're like, I don't and then it's like, well, like actually it's getting a little shorter than that. And you're like, what can what six message seconds. can someone deliver? <laughs> like one second. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just a flash. I can't even read the words. No words. There's no words anymore. Yeah. Oh, God. Well, let's get into a little bit of external affairs because that's what you do, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit about your role in, in ah. your day to day. 
And so I think for me, it's like, so this is the intersection with, you know, so the intersection of the fundraising philanthropy, it's mm-hmm. the with the advocacy work, with the sort of traditional communications work. Um, uh, and, you know, um, uh, and it's about sort of public engagement and how are you delivering messages in a way that people will receive them, right? And I think what's been... What's kind of been so meaningful to me about this work in particular is that um, Raices actually did not have, we didn't, we didn't have a fundraising department. We didn't have communication. We didn't have any of that before 2018, right? So those are, these are all outgrowths of that. Um, And what's really important to me is that, well, so there's no expectation of how things should be, right? Versus, um, uh, you know, how they could be. And uh, I have really found it important to essentially dismantle some of the some of the tropes that you find in philanthropy, um, like the helper narrative, right? Like, like the, um, like the the savior, right? It's the how do you tell stories in a way that doesn't denigrate the population that you're advocating for mm. and with? Mm-hmm. And so one of the things early on that I recognize is that, so we're all part of a community. We're all part of an ecosystem. We all have a role. We all have an important role within that. And so whether you're a service provider or service recipient or service supporter, right? Like it's the, it's that we all have our own place here. Um, and a community sort of signals that sort of that circle versus like across lines and, you know, and divisions. And so that's something that we've really, we've really, and sometimes to the detriment of fundraising, if I'm going to be honest, right? Like, because sometimes we don't tap into some of what's, the public at large has been um, sort of trained in of like, let me give a donation to feel better about myself. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. <laughs> and let me absolve myself of like some guilt in the moment <laughs> or, yeah. uh, and, and what I really, so I think that philanthropy in the same way as advocacy, it's all about how do you educate? How do you educate in order to mobilize different groups mm-hmm. to be able to make a difference in a shared cause, mm-hmm. um, a shared area of interest and belief? Mm-hmm. And, you know, how do you do it, especially within immigration, in a way that maybe doesn't even sort of demand that they they meet you where you like you they meet you where you are right like it's like maybe it's like maybe it's the this is a convoluted subject i respect that i understand that it's unclear specifically because it's you know clear as kind in my opinion you know like that's my favorite Mm -hmm. saying (laughs) clear as kind i think immigration policy is unclear um because it is meant to be unkind (laughs) and that's good um, and so it's the, how can I, I'm not going to ask you maybe to understand all the nuance of immigration policy. That's too much. Not even every attorney, you know, functioning oh, in the space knows it. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to ask you to come maybe a few steps 
further from from your comfort zone maybe right and then i'll like and then i'll meet you closer right and Mm -hmm. and then i will i will not shame you for not understanding um not getting it but i'm also going to hold you accountable like when you become a donor to raices you are then held accountable to learning um Mm -hmm. and i find that to be really important and maybe that's because for me as you mentioned, I got my history degree, right? Like I'm a student of history. I think we have to, I think we have to learn where, I think we have to learn where we've come from. I think we have to mm-hmm. learn what has happened before us. So we do not repeat. <laughs> um, we don't become those, we don't become forever subjected um, to repeating the mistakes of the past. Um, uh, I'm also a believer that if we are actually going to make a difference as advocates in our own right, um, that, it's incumbent upon us to learn about what we are advocating for so then we can be better prepared to make a difference specifically within our own networks. Whenever anyone asks me, what is something that they can do to make a difference? And I say, you can resist when someone, whether it's a family member over a holiday meal or it's um, a friend, someone is perpetuating an untruth that you know now to be an untruth about Mm -hmm. uh, the, you know, about the immigrant population. Mm -hmm. Um, And that while, yes, I agree that it can sometimes be easier just to like, I just don't want to, I don't want to get into conflict. I don't want to get into whatever. Let me just, but you know, now that you know better, try and pass that message along. Don't be, no one, you don't need to be strident about it. You can do it in your own way. You can do it however, but don't, don't be accepting of it because then it will perpetuate. Right. And now I want to give you the tools so that you can, you can resist it where it's starting in your own community. Um, And I think that that is, uh, that's, that's why I love the work that specifically we get to do um, at Raices. My, the team that I work with um, gets to do, it's about how do we, how do we use how do we leverage the micro stories, right, of a of a of a client experience um, to shed light on a macro problem, right, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. macro issue? Um, how do we help elucidate some of the complexities that exist? For example, there's a situation right now where um, we're working with a client uh, who uh, fled Nicaragua. Mm. Um, depending upon different reports, anywhere from 15 to 35% of um, Nicaraguans uh, born each year do not have a birth certificate. Um, and um, so he is one of those um, that yeah. do not have a birth certificate. And so he was denied asylum, ordered to be deported, but has been in ICE immigration prison for over a year now, 13 months now. It's horrible. Because Nicaragua won't accept him back because he doesn't have a birth certificate. Oh my God. And so you don't think about that, right? But it's just like, so then he's just, is he forever? He's forever stuck in the crosshairs of bureaucracy too now, right? What is the solution for that? That's the thing is that there are no clear cut solutions. (laughs) 
<laughs> and so the you exhaust every legal option, every advocacy option, and then it still ends up getting stuck in <laughs> sort of the government bureaucracy um, uh, in uh, in a way that 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 makes you want literally cry um, because here's a man who was fleeing for his life. Yeah. And yet still even would be open to returning in lieu of just staying in jail for forever. Yeah. And yet there's nothing that you can do except for, I mean, continue to advocate. I mean, and I think that that's the beauty of the work that we're able to do, that our attorneys are able to do, um, that we from an external affairs standpoint are able to do um to continue to elevate to amplify these um these stories in order to be able to to apply every type of legal and public sort of persuasion tactic and pressure mm -hmm. we can um to be able to investigate you know what are the you know does this fall within the lines of 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 unlawful imprisonment right because yeah. um but so few relatively have have these tireless advocates on their behalf, right? And so um it's another reason why we've we've all become quite, you know, quite ardent supporters of a universal representation model at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, because again, most people don't realize that in immigration court, you have no right to an attorney. Right. And mm, our colleagues have seen young two, three-year-olds being expected to represent themselves in immigration court. It, it's, it really feels like it's made up. When I tell people, they just don't believe it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like, how can that, how can that even be possible? And yes, it is. Yeah. And and then I also don't blame people in sometimes because sometimes you just need to disassociate, right? I mean, because there are so many, sometimes it feels like the world's on fire and I get it. <laughs> I get mm -hmm. it. Um, but what I would also say is that, look, I would look at, I would look at how, and you see this in, 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 different areas right now from a policy perspective, but if you think the transgression of one's like human and legal rights, if you think that it's just going to be towards a specific population, right? Um, and that it's never going to affect you, you're, you're wrong. Yeah. Um, and I think that specifically within immigration, what we're able to see up close is that it's one of the most intersectional issues when it comes to social justice, you know, right, right. So it's the view, if it is mad, like John Oliver was talking about just how broken the immigration system is from yeah. his <laughs> having gone through it. So if the white, <laughs> the affluent mm -hmm. white man <laughs> who, who had Hollywood behind him, <laughs> yeah. God, it's, it's broken. <laughs> Believe me, it's broken. 
Yeah. Then um, just imagine how that's compounded when you add on being a person of color, being a member of the LGBTQ community, you know, just continue, you know, just, but just, and, and you see it, you see it in the bond rates, right? Like for the last, mm-hmm. since 2018, so much of the funding that we received in that moment, we put towards a bond fund where we spent about just about $20 million we've spent on mm-hmm. um, uh, bonds to release people from immigration prison. Um, people from individuals from African and Caribbean nations, the median bond rates consistently, when we look at all of our data over the last five years, has been 50% higher than bond rate for anyone else. Um, And so you don't, it's, we also in the same way of like, yeah, we like the good and the bad or the, you know, the right and the wrong, it's also a lot of times is that we silo everything off and we don't mm-hmm. recognize <laughs> that it's um, that actually no, like that it's uh, you're not just an immigrant. <laughs> yeah. You're everything else. And all those lived experiences that also add up to that. And you are then treated accordingly based upon systemic oppressions Um that have long existed in, in the U.S. and elsewhere. Yeah, no, you're to- you're totally right. I mean, for I mean, for me, practicing for so many years, representing individuals who are from Europe as well, who are professionals or external ability, you know, it's also not that easy for them, and for everybody else, it's infinitely more difficult. But in the end, the policies are also racist, and <laughs> and I mean, and and we saw that happen with Ukraine and at the border, you know, with us volunteering and trying to get the Central Americans in, trying to get the Asians and the Haitians in, and then the war happens, and the Ukrainians are walking in. And again, I'm glad they were able to do that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm glad they were able to do that. But that also proved that we had a system that could work, that the government had a system that could work to bring in tens of thousands of of, of individuals when you know, when they wanted to. So it, that was really in our face. And that's kind of a story that I tell people now, you know, and and in the media, I blame the media as well, just in, in terms of um, always, no. right? Always blaming the people of color, like, the, oh, those, all oh, the black people are coming in. I mean, it's just, it, it's it's really, really horrible. But Oh man, we can go on and on. But I'll, but I'll tell you, so <laughs> just put a finer point on on Ukraine. Um, I agree. I I hold that up as I'm like, I'm like, well, look, this is a standard, right? We're saying that this is something that we are capable of. Um, this is a standard that we should set that everyone should be treated with such respect and such dignity. So it's not taking something away from. I'm not. I'm saying like, no, like it is. It is. Uh, I'm not saying. Oh, they're the lucky ones. I'm saying, gosh, how can we center the humanity of everyone in the way that we saw? Um, Again, there are always going to be exceptions to the rule, right? Like, so I'm not saying that every experience was blissful, (laughs) Um, but I'm just saying, um, again, sort of the construct that was created um, was one that was less denigrating um, than some others. And we've seen that 
also specifically within they came under a humanitarian parole program, same as, you know, Afghans before them had come in under a humanitarian parole program. By the way, Afghans still do not have there's no Afghan Adjustment Act. Um, their status has not been um, they have no permanent status. <laughs> um, uh, the majority of uh, the current administration was able to extend their humanitarian their their ability to renew humanitarian parole. Uh, otherwise, um, the vast majority um, as of September would have been deported. Uh, so again, let's bring it back to full circle back to like 9-11 from the beginning of yeah. our conversation. So like a country that we completely devastated and then handed back the keys to um, uh, the Taliban. And yep. then we're saying, hey, yeah, go back. <laughs> um, so uh, but then humanitarian parole also is the uh, program uh, that had been created for um, this year for the, the metering program of Cubans, Haitians, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans, mm -hmm. um, shorthand CHNV, uh, where Texas is leading litigation um, on you know behalf of 21 states uh, against uh, the Department of Homeland Security for this humanitarian parole program. Um, these states, no one filed litigation against the Ukrainian humanitarian parole program. Oh. Um, it was specifically for the humanitarian parole program for Cubans, Haitians, Nicaraguans, Venezuelans. Wow. Of course. Oh, wow. Faisal, you are, I could honestly listen to you all day. It's amazing. Thank you so much for, I can feel your passion, um, for this work. How can people who want to volunteer or donate, how can they get involved? Really appreciate that. Yeah, just go to our website. It's at raicestexas.org. So R-A-I-C-E-S, Texas, fully spelled out, .org. And it'll be easily accessible how to sign up to volunteer, um, the training that we can give you as well, uh, as well as um, the ability to make a donation and also just to learn more. Uh, again, I'm a real big believer that people have listened to this podcast Hopefully they walk away knowing a little bit more than they did before. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and that uh, they unlock also their passion for learning. And we'll also look at with a little bit of suspicion next time they see a headline. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, totally, so. totally. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Faisal, for your time and your dedication to this work. And I hope in the future you can come back. Thank you. Really appreciate it. This podcast is intended for general education and informational purposes only, and should not be regarded as either legal advice or a legal opinion. You should not act upon or use this publication or any of its contents for any specific situation. Recipients are cautioned to obtain legal advice from their legal counsel with respect to any decision or course of action contemplated in a specific situation. Clark Hill PLC and its attorneys provide legal advice only after establishing an attorney-client relationship through a written attorney-client engagement agreement. This recording does not establish an attorney-client relationship with any recipient.